We'll say our prayer to the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Come, O Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirits, and they shall be created. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Well, I do hope you slept well, and the weather report is good for the present, so that you have the advantage of the lovely grounds. And our first meditation today is concerned with our lives. St. Ignatius, in the exercises, suggests that when you're trying to examine your conscience, you should think of all the houses you've lived in. He says here, I shall recall to mind the sins of my life, looking at them year by year and period by period. Three things will help me to do this. First, I shall recall to mind the place and house where I lived. Secondly, the associations I have had with others. And thirdly, the positions I have filled. Now, I don't think we want to worry only about sins, uh, but I do think both in the question of what we've done wrong and the questions of what we've done right and the gratitude we ought to feel to God for our lives, it does help to go out into the grounds at the beginning of the retreat and look over roughly how far our course has gone. Some of us, of course, have only just left school or college and we've always lived in, the, in Minnesota. But some of you have been in the Pacific, some have been in Vietnam, some of us have traveled widely and had jobs in different countries. So it's quite a good thing, I find, and very entertaining, to go back and think vaguely of the houses we've lived in. In the old days, of course, you could do that easily because you only lived in about one house in your life. On the islands where I used to live, there were two families that had been there since the reign of King Richard II. They were a bit constipated, I thought. <laughs> but their meditation was of all the antiques they'd collected in all the cupboards over the centuries. Some of us may have had the luck to be always in one place. Some of us have traveled widely. And then the offices we've held, and indeed um, certain friendships we've had down the years. Some have gone now, some haven't. It makes a very good starting point. Cardinal Newman, who we are going to think about so much in this retreat, wrote a little poem about it, of which I give you the verse because it's very good. Did we not see, did we but see, when life first opened, how our journey lay between its opening and its closing day? Did we but see, when life first opened, how our journey lay between its opening and its closing day. He wrote that when he was 32 at the place where St. Paul dies. He went to Rome and where St. Paul was beheaded, and Newman was so moved to think of Paul's career. St. Paul, as we know, started with, he had a PhD theology in Jerusalem or somewhere like that. He studied under Gamaliel. He was a bitter Pharisee, the Pharisee of Pharisees. 
and that he persecuted the church and actually watched St. Stephen being stoned to death, a young man of his own religion and own country. How he did that, I don't know, but he did, and he was never sorry. He thought it was right. You could read it in the Acts 7, and as Luke dictated, got all his matter from St. Paul, Luke puts down and Paul held the garments of the men who stoned St. Stephen and concurred in it. So he had a funny start, much worse than most of us. And now here at the other end of his life, he laid down his life for our Lord, against whom he fought so bitterly. He completely changed in the course of a lifetime. Now Cardinal Newman wrote that, and his life is even more extraordinary. I think I should make clear right now, although some of you probably know more about Cardinal Newman than I do, others don't. There are three Newmans in the limelight at the moment, and one of them, the most popular, is Paul Newman, the actor. All my men friends tell me he was very good in Fort Apache, and all the ladies tell me he had lovely blue eyes. So you can meditate on that if you want. Then there's St. John Neumann or Newman in Philadelphia, rightly honored there, just canonized. The eyes of a bishop, don't, the color of them doesn't matter much when he's dead, and also when he's a saint. Uh, but he was about the contemporary of Cardinal Newman, uh, but came from Germany, I think, and was an emigrant and a very delightful and holy man. John Henry, Cardinal Newman, he's the, by far the most important. People, great scholars don't hesitate to compare him to St. Augustine or St. Thomas Aquinas or any doctor of the church. And one of your most learned historians in America told me in dead secret he would put Cardinal Newman next to the New Testament. And I would concur. It's a subjective decision. You can't weigh up one great man against another. But Newman's not just, this, the one we are thinking of is not just an ordinary man, he's one of the most outstanding figures in history. Now Cardinal Newman, his own life was extraordinary. And as you know, he was born a Calvinist, if you can do such a thing. He was brought up in the very lowest of the low churches. That his mother's family were Huguenots, and he himself therefore, at school and everywhere, grew up to think of the Pope as Antichrist and loathed Rome and all, bitterly and also was brought up in the very noble uh, side of the evangelical world. At the age of 15 he had a, a, a sort of conversion and he knew he was saved. Any of you who are charismatic and have been baptized in the Spirit will understand the sort of thing that happens even to evangelicals. He saw these two luminously self-evident beings, my Creator and myself. They became vivid to him. And right through his life, up to 90 or 89 when he died, he always maintained that that was one of the greatest events of his life when he suddenly had almost a vision at 15. And from his early childhood too, he was brought up to think of himself as saved, and he also, of course, came deeply to pray, even as a small boy. And he had two curious sentences that his devoted schoolmaster told him, which remained with him all his life, 
and he developed them without knowing it in nearly all his books and sermons, as we'll see. Mr. Scott, the schoolmaster who he loved so much when he was young, had these two statements, holiness rather than peace, and growth is the only evidence of life. You won't make much of those now, but you'll see these reappearing all through the conferences in the retreat. Holiness rather than peace, and that growth is the only evidence of life. You've got to grow to show you're alive. Well, Newman remained uh, evangelical. He was very anti-drink when he was at the university. He played very few games. He always was writing plays and magazines and journals. But when he came to be at the university and got a scholarship, he then gradually gave up evangelicalism. He could not say that if other people were damned for all eternity. The root of Calvin was there were the elect, and then he didn't like to think what happened to the rest. And when he became a young clergyman, he didn't like to call on people feeling that he was better than they were. That's true also in the charismatic movement, good as it is, right through history, anything that makes you elite, that I've had the baptism of the Spirit and you haven't, is always dangerous. And Newman himself gradually abandoned evangelicalism, though when he was young, many of the people thought him of a Methodist, he wasn't. He was very low church. He had made his first communion when he was about 21 in the Episcopalian church. Well, that was his first thing. And then, when he was at this transitional period, when he was leaving the faith of his fathers and what he'd learned at school, he went to Europe for the first time. And there he went. He wouldn't put, he talked to no Catholics at all. He hardly ever went into any Catholic church. He so disliked it. He saw all sorts of corruptions which shocked him, like posters in Naples where the holy souls were swimming around in a sea of flames. He thought that was awful. He disliked devotion to Mary more than anything. And in Rome, he only once went to the Vatican just to hear the Miserere sung at Terebri by the Vatican choir. He was a great lover of music, played the violin very well, and loved Beethoven. But when he went to St. Paul's grave and read that verse about seeing the end of your life when you begin, he himself was going through a very extraordinary period. And he wrote his most famous hymn. And that I would like you very much to pray about uh, when you think of your own life. It's a famous line, uh, thing. He wrote it after when his, the boat he was on coming back to England was becalmed. And he was nearly ten days, I think, stuck in the Mediterranean. So he wrote his famous poem, Lead Kindly Light. The verse, first stanza goes, Lead kindly light amidst the encircling gloom, lead thou me on. The night is dark and I am far from home, lead thou me on. Keep thou my feet, I do not ask to see the distant scene, one step enough for me. The words to pray about are one step enough for me. Because that's true of us. If Newman had known then that he would die a cardinal in the Roman church, he would have committed suicide, I think. We would have never had this retreat any more than Paul would have uh, survived if he'd known when he was watching St. Stephen's stone that he was watching a saint being killed. 
We don't know. So Newman's great verse, one step enough for me, could make the beginning of our retreat. When I've looked as where I've got to now, whatever my age is, uh, then I only want to know the next step. Well, Newman came back to Oxford, as you know, and then he became an Episcopalian. And he did what no other man had really done before him in our lifetime and before. He turned to the fathers of the church, right back to the people who received the faith from the apostles. He wanted to show that there was a church founded by Christ of which Roman Catholicism, Greek Catholicism, and, Evangel and Episcopalianism were all branches. He thought he would find a common root and then the corruptions of Rome would go one way, the Greek church would go another way, and he wanted the Anglican church to be a third way, free of corruptions, but with the faith that was handed down by the apostles. So he started with St. Athanasius, who he studied all his life. Even when he was a man near 80, he brought out a new translation. Athanasius was the great man uh, for the creed, We'll say more of him later. He read copiously from Augustine and all the other fathers, trying to find out what was the basic of Christianity. And with, uh, I won't go on too long, of course he started then with a group of friends uh, to try and lead a Catholic life as far as history allowed. Therefore they began to say the breviary. They got hold of breveries, and 13 or more of them said the breviary. Then after that he began to practice communion. He used to have daily communion when he was the vicar of St. Mary's. Not many people came, but he began it, and he began trying to bring confession in, because he found among the elderly ancient fathers that the forgiveness of sins was a sacrament. So he built up a kind of halfway house, the Via Media, a halfway house to Rome, hating Rome and thinking it totally corrupt. And he wrote his famous tracts, and then after, when he was about 43 or so, he wrote his Tract 90, which caused a great offence in Oxford because they thought he was, going Roman, he was being Romanized. And Newman had very great doubts, so he retired from the Episcopalian Church. It's a very moving and sad tale. He um, preached his last sermon. He preached 600 at the university drawing as many as 500 undergraduates and young graduates every Sunday. One of the best preachers probably of the century. But now he preached his last sermon at Littlemore where I live. There he built a little chapel of ease for the villagers three miles outside Oxford. His mother laid the foundation stone and um, he pontificated there. When he came to say goodbye, he preached his thing, the parting of friends. And the little church was jammed with all his friends in Oxford, many very well distinguished writers, professors, etc. They were all in tears. And when he finished his sermon, he removed his Master of Arts gown and hung it on the communion rails and ceased to be a minister of the Church of England. Then he found the place where I now live, uh, it had been a coaching station where the coach from Oxford to Cambridge was kept and the horses. Now the railroad had just arrived and so it was all falling to pieces. So he leased this place 
and he, the, the, where the horses, the, the barn is, was his library, and all the grooms' cottages and a few horse boxes, he joined them all together and made 13 rooms and a little quadrangle. And they had a chapel, it has no windows, it's oh, not, not as big as the sacristy here. And they had no blessed sacrament, of course, and they had a, a cross without a figure, and there these 13 men lived for three years. And Cardinal Newman's room is the last one, and I've, I've now got the room that Father Stanton occupied. They all became Catholics eventually, and all but one were ordained priests. Cardinal Newman eventually couldn't go on. He waited and waited. He couldn't be sure. He hated Rome, and on the other hand, he knew more and more that the Episcopal Church was not true. One of his young undergraduate friends living there, who became Father Lockhart, the Rosminian, went to Newman one day and asked to go to confession. And he said to Newman, do you think you can forgive me? And Newman said, no, you better go to Dr. Pusey. Dr. Pusey didn't become a Catholic, but Newman did, and Newman suddenly realized I'm not a priest. And he had a terrible time, partly with all his family and all his friends, his sister wouldn't write to him. To become a Roman in those days was appalling. He hardly knew a Catholic in the whole of his life up to then. Well, eventually, St. Dominic Bar Blessed Dominic Barbary came, an Italian who could hardly speak English, blew in, and Newman knelt down and said he'd like to go to confession and be received into the true church. That's just outside my room. I can, I can see the place where he went to confession. They had no altar, so they went to his study and took the great lectern that he used, a great big thing like, a, like we use here, uh, which he always wrote standing. So they brought it into the chapel and pushed it down flat, and Father Barbary said Mass there, and Newman and three of his friends received their first communion. The others were ordained elsewhere. But um, I still use that altar. It's got no cover, and it was used a hundred and something years ago, 1845. Newman was 45 when he became a Catholic. That was his second stage, one step enough for me. Of course, he had to leave this place. It belonged to the Church of England. So his little retreat house stood empty for a hundred years, and now recently was bought back by his own order, the Oratorians. But he went to Rome, became a priest, and then lived the rest of his life in Birmingham. He was a major flop in the Catholic Church. The greatest man of his day, he lost all his Church of England friends by being a Catholic, and then, sadly enough, he lost um, a great many of his friends who became converts, thought him too broad-minded. They became fanatical. Father Faber and the future Cardinal Manning uh, were more Roman than the Pope. And old Newman, who'd led them all, sat in the background, he wrote his three famous books, and he did every job he did was a failure. He first went to Ireland, was tried to start the university there, at the request of the Irish hierarchy, and that failed completely after seven years. Then he began to translate the Bible, and then he heard that you were starting the Baltimore translation over here, so he scrapped his. He, and his three famous books, the Epilogia, etc., they were, brought great friends to him later, but at the time, he went through a terrible time in the true church, not really regarded as a spent force. And then the most amazing thing happened 
which is well worth praying when we think of one step enough for me. Father Barbary, after he had received Cardinal Newman into the church, went to Belgium immediately for a meeting of the Passionist Order of which he was a distinguished member. And another strange convert, Father Spencer, who became a Passionist, and is very closely related to the lady who Prince Charles is marrying in a few weeks' time, Father Ignatius Spencer and uh, Father Barbary went to Brussels and they met the papal nuncio, quite a young man, Monsignor Specci. And they said to him, we've just received the most remarkable man into the church. Well, nothing happened, and Petri became Bishop of the Turbo, I think, or somewhere, and nothing was heard for 30 years, and then Petri was elected Pope, Pope Leo XIII. And when his secretary said to him in 1878, what are, what's your reign going to be distinguished for, Petri said, wait till you see my first list of cardinals. And at the very top of the list of cardinals was Father Newman. He wasn't even a more senior. He was just Father Newman, suddenly found himself made a cardinal. And his last ten years, there he was, a cardinal of the Roman Church, and all his friends came back. When he died, I was amazed to see the London Times had the whole spread. They couldn't have done more for Queen Victoria. His life, he was the most outstanding man. And, of course, we've now got to the stage where nearly, at the last council of the church nearly all the bishops from Australia and Fiji and God and all the ones I met all kept on talking about Newman's council the, the documents of the council and the development in the church largely came from him well having given you the verse he wrote as a Protestant one step enough for me lead kindly light amidst the encircling gloom then he wrote as a Catholic a beautiful hymn which you could also meditate on. Praise to the holiest in the heights, and in the depths be praised, in all his words most wonderful, most sure in all his ways. A great scholar once t told me he thought that was the most beautiful use of an adjective in the English language when Newman said of God, most sure. If you were to go away in the garden and think over your life as far as it's got, and thank God for what's good in it, not always to be looking for mortal sins, like a hen on a dunghill. Um, the, the great thing is you take the first words, one step enough for me, and then you take the words he wrote as a Catholic, most sure in all his ways. He was an old, old man when he wrote that, in the dream of Gerontius. And it makes a very, very good beginning to a retreat for us all to meditate for ourselves. We only want to see the next step. None of us know, have the faintest idea, how long our life will last or how it will end. We are not even sure that we will be holy. We may lapse. We may have tragedies, illness, etc. But the great thing Newman taught, teaches me is that one step is all you need and also that God is totally sure, as in the case of St. Paul, where he changed a man right round, or in the case of Newman himself, extraordinary change from being an evangelical and then an Anglican and then a failure in the Catholic Church and then a cardinal. It's amazing how certain God is and how remarkably he keeps the balance. It's rather sad that for the last hundred years the Anglicans all sing Lead Kindly Light 
but we won't because it was written when he was a Protestant and we sing praise to the holiest and they won't sing it because he wrote it as a Catholic. But now I'm glad to say those days are over and now his hymns are sung. Lead Kindly Lights is sung, I don't know why, at football games in all the big soccer matches that they sing it. Perhaps one step enough for me is what each side wants. So therefore we'll think of that and then we'll go on in the retreat after this to take today, say, four or five of Newman's sermons. I picked them out for my own sake because I, holiness was the thing he mentioned as a little boy. A man, this, his great master said, the holiness rather than peace. And so our first talk will be on holiness, which you and I don't uh, very often think about. And yet it runs right through nearly all his books, this concept. Then we'll take one or two of the sermons like that, and then we'll come tomorrow to the great, his greatest part he played in the church in the incarnation of our blessed Lord. So that therefore, that would be the program. I would like you then now, we've got, uh, we're free, and I'd like you very much to um, go out into the garden and think over your own life, asking God to show you just how your life has worked out till now. It's not bound to be a failure all the time because it's been a failure up to now. One of the most remarkable priests I've seen in my life was an alcoholic and had DTs and was in total disgrace when he was 66. I know him well, he's in America. Now he's done, doing more than I've ever known any priest to do in charity to help those who've got troubles with drink. That all his own sufferings were necessary to him. He said to me that I never thought, I, I never intended to commit a sin ever. I never knew I was alcoholic. You always felt I can overcome this. Now that I find I can't, now if I drank it would be a mortal sin. But all those years, and it's how strange we all are. So you can have a marriage that fails, you can have a thing like alcoholism, you can have bad health all your life, or you can be like Mother Teresa, who started, after all, in Yugoslavia. How the hell she got to India, I can't make out. And then she taught in a school for most of her life. And then, finally, when you come down at the end, you get uh, Newman himself saying of God, most sure in all his ways. <laughs>